Good morning, my geeselings. It's Mother Goose Robinson here for the introduction to Robinson's podcast number 32 with Ray Briggs. Last night I got all dressed up and recorded a nice introduction to this episode that took about 12 tries. Uh, But then when I listened to it this morning, Pins, the cat who was just in my lap a moment ago, was apparently playing with the cord the entire time. So the recording is all muffled. Anyway, I'm, I'm giving it another try this morning. Ray is a professor of philosophy at Stanford University. They're a wonderful professor. Their knowledge of the literature is practically encyclopedic across, as far as I can tell, uh, just about every branch of philosophy. They started out at MIT, where they did their doctoral work studying decision theory and epistemology and metaphysics, I think, a bit as well. But in the past few years, has been working on sex, gender, and transfeminism. And when I heard that they were teaching a course on transfeminism this winter, I knew immediately, okay, well, we've got to talk about that. So uh, Ray was generous enough to come on and and talk to me about that course and about a book that they are currently working on, uh, What Even Is Gender Anyway? So we talk about sex, gender, transfeminism, uh, queer science fiction, thought experiments in the space, and I'm very much grateful that they came on to talk to me about this, not only because of my philosophical interest in the topic, but because issues of sex and gender in a way that uh, philosophy of physics or philosophy of math uh, aren't, are extremely relevant uh, in today's world. This was actually, I think, the most difficult conversation I've had on the podcast, not only because I know absolutely nothing about the topic, but because it was very important to me to do it justice. I don't quite think I did, but Ray certainly did. And the reason that I don't think I did is I was very concerned about not saying anything or suggesting anything or making mistakes that might be harmful to listeners, might offend people, or that might be misrepresentative of what I feel. So consequently, I I, I think I was stumbling over my tongue a lot. But hopefully, uh, you can get past that and pay more attention to Ray than me because they had all sorts of wonderful things to say. And I hope you really enjoy this conversation as much as I enjoyed having Ricky Heck at Brown, and their story reminds me somewhat of yours in in that they started out doing logic, but then they transitioned to philosophy or pornography, and that's that's not like an obvious switch to make. And I I don't get the sense that you've switched from decision theory or 
epistemology or metaphysics because yeah i'm not done with decision theory or epistemology or metaphysics right well they're also part of trans feminism and philosophy of gender but what um got you started in this direction at least philosophically yeah i mean basically i had a personal experience of transitioning and being like what the heck is going on this is so weird (laughs) and so wanting Mm -hmm. to use philosophy to understand my life okay and then yeah naturally that led to all sorts of questions that you had to answer and so we talked a bit about this before we started but this is a, a sensitive subject matter unlike the philosophy of logic or language or physics for that matter and when you teach a class on this subject because you you've done philosophy of gender before uh yes yeah, so i actually taught a transfeminism class uh at stanford okay. and you're teaching one this, this coming yeah. winter yeah which is a version of the one i taught before but probably revamped to, to read different things and things i'm excited about reading now okay and my question is when you teach a class on this topic how do you prepare your students to engage in like good faith and respectful discussion because i mean with all sorts of speculation and uh, thought experiments that people will pull out uh if you're not if they're not careful they might say something that could be really offensive or hurtful to someone yeah so my my students were pretty wonderful about this actually so i i basically set it up um so, so one thing that people do that I actually didn't do um, is to like have a ground rules discussion on the first day. And I kind of thought like, I, I know some things about what I want the ground rules to be. So I am not going to ask about those things because I kind of already know that I want them on the list of ground rules. So I, my ground rules, uh, oh God, um, do you mind if I open up my syllabus so that I remember correctly? No, please go for it. Yeah, so so I gave a list of three ground rules, uh, which were, uh, I called empiricism, intersectional feminism, and inquisitiveness. So okay. empiricism uh, was basically just, like, don't speculate about, uh, like, things that aren't true. If you, if you want to speculate, or if you want to argue about, like, trans lives you don't you need to not posit falsehoods and posit truths and and there were a couple of like really nice readings that i got to assign there so jacob hale has this uh list of suggested rules for non-transsexuals writing about transsexuals transsexuality transsexualism or trans uh, um and also like a less related thing is is uh dan dennett has uh this paper called higher order truths about chmes uh i don't know if you've mm-hmm. encountered this i haven't read the paper but i always hear people talk about chmes yes so, so I, now i know where it comes from yeah so chmes is like chess except for like the knight can move diagonally and chmes is a perfectly well-formed object of study you could mathematically like figure out lots of chmes st- strategy details but nobody cares because nobody plays chess. And so mm-hmm. Dennett gives you the advice uh, when you're trying to figure out like the answer to a philosophical problem, make sure you're playing chess and not chess. Like make sure you're characterizing a real phenomenon rather than one you made up in your head, which I think is actually like, of course this is like broadly applicable, but whenever you're theorizing about people's lives, like 
make sure that you get the facts right is kind of so that that was my first rule um i mean if i'm monologuing sorry go on <laughs> no 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 that's fine so is that related to what you said by not positing falsehoods yeah because like i i do and think a lot of like cis people theorizing about like trans experience don't get the experience right okay i, I believe that what what might be what do you mean by positing a falsehood does anything can you think of anything that would be simple to uh, yeah. So, um, I think like a lot of like pop culture depictions of like, I mean, like, so, so Talia Betcher has this great paper called Evil Deceivers and Make Believers, which talks about cultural depictions of, of trans women as, as like these like evil sexual predators. Um, and like, you're, you're like, this is ridiculous, but it's also all over the place. So if you start from assuming that that's like what trans people are like, you're not going to get an adequate theory of the phenomena. And I, I like, I feels a little mm. bit embarrassing to be like, well, don't do that because why would you do that? But sometimes people do, and I didn't want them to do that. Uh, that that's interesting that you mentioned that uh, as trans women being construed as evil sexual predators, because I, I also, we mentioned, um, Barry Lamb's Hi-Fi Radio or Hi-Fi Nation and he had an episode on these topics and something that came up was the question of why trans women are more discriminated against than trans men right. and one of the one of the one of his guests posited uh, that it's because Westbrook right I don't I don't remember I listened to podcasts very fast and I was just getting the beats but I think the I the idea was that men fear like the they fear the femme fatale and they feel being entrapped by a trans woman and that who will then make them gay and right. then they also fear that uh, it's they fear women being raped by trans women yeah talia betcher has like a bunch of of like really cool stuff and and laurel westbrook are, are two authors that i would recommend on on this um mm. yeah i mean i think it's kind of like all weirdly connected to misogyny like i well this is not me being original but like i think that like misogyny against trans women is like pretty of a piece with misogyny against cis women even though it's like a a slightly different and more terrifying version. Yeah, I, it's just I hadn't it hadn't occurred to me before listening to this episode that trans women are so much more discriminated against than trans men. I well, maybe yeah. Maybe I mean, I hate to make comparisons, but like, I I think I wouldn't. Yes, I wouldn't switch places. Like, I I I think that like trans women have this kind of like terrifying like being scrutinized all the time and that seems much worse than just kind of being invisible sure yeah maybe I, maybe that was the wrong thing to say but when i hear sort of insensitive wrong attacking statements about trans people they tend to be um focused on trans women yeah no i, I mean but, i think like i you're not supposed to compare oppressions but honestly i think that one is pretty fair like i i guess like okay. also it kind of interacts with whiteness like because i i think like men of color are often like treated as like their masculinity is a threat 
um whereas like white men are treated as like oh like your masculinity is a source of authority so so i think it like interacts with Hmm. race in weird ways but then like also like trans women of color put up with a lot of crap Mm -hmm. so while i i want to talk also about just gender generally since we're on the topic of trans feminism I was hoping you could distinguish feminism from trans feminism for me, because I mean, most people probably have an idea what feminism is, but then philosophers might use the word feminism differently from than regular people, just like we use the word like object or language. Right. We're talking about something else. So could you help me with that? Right. So, so, I mean, I, I kind of, I, I, even though it's a little bit pretentious, I kind of like feminisms plural, like there are a lot of uh different parts of philosophy or like approaches to how um sexism and oppression of women is harmful to society and like harmful to our ability to discover the truth and like how do we build a world that takes like perspectives of people who aren't just like men or maybe men of the dominant category into account so i think like feminism is sort of philosophy that is realistic about the oppression of women and then you know some some women are trans women so trans feminism is is focused on the perspectives of trans women specifically um which is kind of interesting because like in in my course we also talk about the perspectives of like trans men and non-binary trans people so it's not but i don't think feminism is like i don't think feminism is only for women i think it's for everybody um (laughs) thank you bell hooks for the slogan feminism is for everybody uh but i do think um there there's like some idea that like women's perspectives are neglected and central and uh like trans women's perspectives are also neglected and should be central to trans feminism uh, oh i should also say that uh i think the term trans feminism was coined by emmy koyama who has this yeah. thing called the trans feminist manifesto I think, uh, yeah i saw that um in your syllabus well while we're on the topic about you say there are many different feminisms and it sounds like they also kind of overlap this is just an aside i saw yesterday looking at some syllabi for other classes that there are feminist philosophies of science oh yeah and i was wondering if you could tell me a bit about what that is Uh, because i i just feminism seems more like a, a social thing to me just in general but i can see how it dovetails with neglect of uh, other view, views other than the than white males across disciplines yeah i mean i think that science is also a social thing which is why you can have feminist philosophy of science like science is done by groups of people making assumptions and like enacting social practices that enable them to like get equipment to do investigations and get money to do investigations and a lot of those assumptions are kind of shaped by sexist worldviews in ways that aren't immediately obvious. And one of the things that feminist philosophy of science does is sort of help you unpack that and help you sort of see how to build a different worldview. Okay. 
Yeah. Okay. No, that 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 makes sense to me. Interesting. Yeah. And okay. Now now we we can get to the. Sorry. Oh, I was gonna I was gonna shout out to my uh, the work of my my Stanford colleague uh, Helen Longino, who's done a lot of um, foundation. I guess emerita colleague now. She's done a lot of work in in feminist of philosophy of science where. She argues that um, the choice of scientific concepts and questions to investigate often encodes values. Okay. Cool. Yeah, I. I you said she's an emeritus professor. Yeah, I haven't seen her around, so she must not be teaching right now. Yeah. She. Yeah. So. So she's sadly retired. Uh, okay. Yeah. So I missed out on that. Yeah. <laughs> Now, it seems like at the at the basis of any discussion of transgender issues, we need to know what a gender is and how it relates to sex, what are gender categories, uh, and even what are social categories more broadly, you ask that question um, in your syllabus. So you might think like you can do a lot of investigating of gender or transgender without being able to define those things like you often just find a phenomenon in the world and you're like let me say some truths about this thing without being able to right. define most people it. take it for granted that they're gender yeah yeah um and like i can i can state and identify truths about gender without really being able to define the term the way that i can identify like truths about fish without having a definition of fish so, um, mm -hmm. but I think it can be helpful to, to figure out like, uh, what, yeah. So I, th I think it can be helpful to ask questions about the nature of gender or about the nature of transness because it can shed light on those things, but it's not really the only way to shed light on those things. And like, also so like, what are some, sorry, go ahead. <laughs> what, what are some of the truths about gender that you're comfortable saying before defining what the term is? Uh, yeah, so I think um, the world contains women and men who are expected to fall into different social roles, and also people who are hard to categorize. Uh, and uh, we can like say things about the prescribed social roles for uh, people belonging to different gender categories. Oh, I should also say that like, I have a, a book called What Even Is Gender coming out um, with co-authored my colleague VR George, and we're we're skeptical of the idea of like using the word gender to refer to one thing because we think it just conflates a bunch of things. But I, I think I'm like happy to loosely talk that way. <laughs> I did want to flag that I'm not even sure there's one thing called gender. Okay, I'm 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 surprised to hear that. Can you tell me like what if gender isn't just referring to one thing? what else what are the multiple things that it might be referring to uh so among them are sort of categories like woman man non-binary okay. um and then social expectations about um how physical characteristics should pair with behaviors um some of the behaviors that figure in those social expectations so like say wearing lipstick is not a social expectation it's a thing that people can do or not do but it figures in some of the social expectations. Um, so we also uh, sort of group like biological characteristics under gender. Um, so so sometimes these are distinguished from gender and it's said that like sex is biological and gender is social. Um, 
that's a little bit vexed actually so so we could talk about that no i i would love to talk about that because i think i think that i think that that's where a lot of the resistance to because a lot of i i remember when i first heard i think it was in high school that there should have been or somebody was suggesting that there was a third uh, pronoun. I think it was Z to refer to people who were not uh, male or female. And I just didn't understand what that meant. And I think a lot of resistance to accepting trans people and a lot of the discrimination they face comes from people just assuming that there are only two genders because that's what they've experienced their entire lives. So I, I, I would like to disentangle the sex and gender and why it's such a, a vexed connection. Yeah. So I, I actually, I want to, I want to plug an unpublished paper that I've just been like reading and enjoying by Paul Griffiths called what are sexes, which is about okay. sexes in biology. So Griffiths is like a, a philosopher of evolutionary biology and he has this very interesting argument that there are only two sexes. They are not properties of individuals um, that follow them throughout their lives. Uh, and they don't partition organisms neatly into two categories without remainder. In fact, they don't partition humans neatly into two categories without remainder. Um, they're properly properties of gametes. Um, so I, th I thought this was like... Oh, that is interesting. Yeah. So it is true that like... Um, there's this kind of deep bi biological, like, division of gametes into, like, the big one and the small one roles that so we see. So eggs and sperm. Yeah, yeah, eggs and sperm. We see that, like, across species and across, like, kingdoms, which is wild. Like, just sexually reproducing organisms have this, like, division of labor among their gametes which seems to be like kind of stable for game theoretic reasons. So that's really cool, but that's about gametes and the relationship between gametes and individuals is pretty complicated. So you have individuals that produce both kinds of gametes. You have individuals that produce no gametes. You have individuals that produce one gamete during one phase of their life and then change to producing a different gamete during a different phase of their life. So the fact that gametes have sexes um, doesn't straightforwardly tell you how to assign individuals to sexes. Right. Um, and then I think a lot of, um, a lot of discussions of uh, sexes in humans rely on really specific features of human biology that aren't shared across organisms. Um, right. So, so that on its face suggests to me that, yeah, we should have a different way of classifying at least human sexes from the sexes of other animals. Uh, I, yeah, I'm not, I'm not actually sure. So if you, if you want to do evolutionary biology of humans, you might think like, yeah, human gametes are sort of the, the kind of key explanatory thing. And then like, as a matter of fact, um, humans produce at most one type of gametes throughout their life. I can't, like, I don't know of any exceptions to that generalization. You never know with biology, there's always an exception to mm -hmm. almost everything. Uh, so humans produce at most one type of gametes in their life. Some of them don't ever produce any type of gametes in their life. And most of them spend big chunks of their life not producing any gametes. And you might say like, well, you get honorarily sorted into 
effects based on the size of the gametes that you produce when you produce them, which classifies most but not all humans because some just never produce any gametes. Um, and then like you got, but but that actually like that doesn't necessarily correspond to the the social roles of womanhood and manhood very closely and then there are a bunch of so everybody loves chromosomes i think because people want want genetics to be deep and explanatory and chromosomes are a kind of genetic thing um mm -hmm. so it turns out that that um humans and other mammals most other mammals i think um uh determine sort of gamete production by by chromosomes and the mismatched chromosomes make you produce the male gametes and the matched chromosomes make you produce the female gametes other species have like different systems where like um so, so some species have the the mismatched chromosomes make you produce the female gametes and the matched chromosomes make you produce the male gametes and then z and w get used for those chromosomes and some some creatures uh have like what gametes you produce depends on the temperature at which your eggs are incubated so like the relationship between uh genes and gametes is is like pretty reliable for humans but not like not constant across species so that's that's kind of interesting um none of that tells you what the social significance of any of that should be like there are lots mm -hmm. of genetic factors i have where like nobody really cares and nobody really ought to care and like it's not a big feature of my social life so i think you can only understand gender and humans if you understand like it's it's social significance so like the, sure i have like these biological features like why should anybody care why should people decide what color i wear as a baby based on like this weird reproductive biology so i think that's where like things get interesting so you said that at this point you think that gender might refer to multiple things mm -hmm. And you seem confident with that, but not so much like you're, you have a confident position on what sex is in humans at this point. Uh, yeah. So, so I think, um, sex in humans might refer to like what kinds of gametes you produce when you produce gametes might refer to, uh, some correlated things like chromosomes, but also like hormone levels, like secondary sexual characteristics, like genitals. Um, and I, uh, it might, it might, uh, so I think legally in some jurisdictions, it refers to what letter is on your birth certificate. Okay. Um, and I, I don't think that like, it's, it's just that like, I need to make a philosophical decision. I think that there's actually like a lot of semantic indecision in how people use the word. So it sounds like masculinity, masculinity and femininity aren't really directly related to sex but they are more directly related to gender or oh right i didn't i didn't say what what gender was and how it differed from sex in the traditional sex gender distinction okay yeah so the sex gender distinction <laughs> um i guess like one one origin is uh, simone de beauvoir who says one is not born but rather becomes a woman and this gets interpreted by later feminists as saying look there's a distinction between like your biological makeup um and the social role you're encultured into and so sex is the biological stuff gender is the cultural stuff this is important because um a lot of the cultural stuff is criticizable 
And people think that it's just grounded in the biological stuff, but it's not. And so the fact that you can show like the social stuff can be hived off and isn't like necessarily grounded in the biological stuff is a good way of critiquing sexism. So I think that's where Bovarians are coming from. There's also this like version of the sex gender distinction that comes out of like sexologists who are studying um, basically trans people or people who would have been classified as trans had they lived in a different time, probably, who think, uh, look, we need to to explain why some people whose bodies we classify as having a male sex don't act in ways that we consider masculine. And so to classify and explain those people and explain why they're not fitting our norms, we say that they have one sex and they have a, a gender that doesn't match. And so I feel, I feel like those are two really different motivations for having this distinction. Um, I should also mention that, sorry, am I, am I monologuing too much? I'm monologuing too much. No, I, the monologuing is great for me. I like it. <laughs> yeah. So keep going. Yeah, so I, sh I should also mention that um, if I didn't say this already, the, the sex-gender distinction isn't really like in Beauvoir. It's sort of a, a later kind of reading on to, to Beauvoir. So like Beauvoir scholars like Toril Moy um, will tell you about this. <laughs> Did you say it was sexologists who were, sorry if I missed it, who were trying to classify whether people would have been transgender in the past? Oh, no, sorry. That was, that, so So I, I'm saying that sexologists uh, studied uh, people who, in my opinion, probably would have been con considered transgender if they had lived in an era where that was the taxonomy. But, so okay, yeah. so that's what I what I was wondering is what what were the taxonomies like in the past? Is that something that you've studied all and how that's changed over time? Oh, I'm such a dilettante, but I I can tell you a little bit about it. Uh, okay, sure. So one kind of early set of taxonomies was was the idea of like an invert. So this this was the idea that um, an invert, yeah. So uh, if you were gay or lesbian or like uncharacteristically masculine or feminine for what you were expected to be, um, then one theory was that you uh, you you somehow had like a masculine soul and a feminine body, or a feminine soul and a masculine body. So your soul and your body got okay. swapped. What time period was this around? So Havelock Ellis wrote uh, sexual in wrote about sexual inversion in 1908. Okay. Oh, so that's that's much more recent even than I would have expected. Yeah. Also, when was the Well of Loneliness? Um, Maybe I could tell you if I knew what that was. Uh, 1928. Uh, so the Well of Loneliness is a uh, a novel by Radcliffe Hall who was either a butch lesbian or a trans man, depending on who you, whose theory you like, um, and who, who wrote this like uh, autobiographical tragic lesbian novel in which uh, like the theory of inversion plays this kind of like central role. Like that's the, that's the way that Hall frames uh, their main character. And the only instance the, there are only two instances uh, going back to the, these historical questions that i can think of because this isn't something i've really researched where 
homosexuality is mentioned that I can think of in historical times. And that's, I think of catamites in Greek culture. And I, I don't think that that was thought of as being, well, I mean, it was by definition homosexual, but I don't, I wouldn't think of it. You'd be thought of as homosexual if you engaged in such a relationship. And then I know that in the Bible, sodomy was very much uh, frowned upon, but so at those times, do you know if, if there was a, a transsexual category? Or uh, so if... this is super interesting. So, so yeah, so Kenneth Dover is the person to read on homosexuality in Greek culture. And you're right. So men having sex with men was, was not considered, like it wasn't considered that you have an essence that is either homosexual or heterosexual. Um, men having sex with men was considered like a normal, like phase of life thing. Huh. Um, and and there were, there were kind of like, there were roles that I would call top and bottom and they were considered differently. Um, the bottom was supposed to be like an adolescent boy. If you, if you bottomed when you were an adult, that was like a bit gauche. Um, the top was supposed to be his huh. mentor. <laughs> so. Were catamites just a military thing? Oh, oh geez. I, I'm probably. Well, it just from what you're saying, it sounds like it was more of a, a broad, broad, a more yeah, it was more broad socially than just the military. Yeah, I think that's right. Um, hmm. Yeah, there, there's actually like I don't know, like like, have you read Plato's Symposium? It is. I haven't. Uh, I mean, it's an extremely like gay dialogue in which uh, Socrates's mentee Alcibiades kind of sloppily, drunkenly confesses his erotic love for socrates and is really frustrated that socrates doesn't want to have sex with him um like i, I i'm not exaggerating that's that's what happens <laughs> in this platonic dialogue <laughs> um that's really funny yeah and and there's like a lot of like discussion of um of like relationships between men um so actually the, the aristophanes uh speech in the symposium does have this theory of of what it is to be gay that's a little bit more like the the kind of contemporary idea that it's like you are essentially drawn to people of one sex or another so he has he has this myth where uh everybody starts out as like these four-legged two-headed creatures and then uh the gods get jealous of them and they split them in half and so what what love is is finding your other half and particularly masculine men their other half is also a man and particularly feminine women their other half is also a woman so this explains like same-sex love yeah and i'm sure that i mean i even though none come to mind i'm sure that there are plenty of myths in which like because i can think of one where zeus like becomes a swan and then he has sex with a woman so i'm sure that there are plenty of myths in which some god uh, takes the form of somebody of the the opposite gender and then starts having has sex i, so. I recommend ovid's metamorphoses for just general bizarreness um including like some gay bizarreness but mostly just just a, a strange stories well while while we're on the topic of fiction you said that you like science fiction for generating good trans-related thought experiments. And I was unaware that there was much gay science fiction literature or trans oh, science so fiction much. literature out there. Yeah. Can you tell, tell me about that? 
So I've I've been on a, a Rivers Solomon kick. Um, Rivers Solomon. Yeah. So I just I just finished uh, reading Sorrowland. Um, and is that science fiction? I. Uh, it's either science fiction or fantasy. I'm not ex- entirely sure how to how to classify their books. Uh, okay, are they a, a trans author? I I believe they're trans. Um, they are also uh, so so they they write. Um, yeah. So so. Let's see which which river, do I do I actually want to talk about Sorrowland or do I want to talk about one of their other novels? So. Uh, there, so they have uh, a novel called uh, The Deep, which is maybe kind of a really interesting, like possibly readable as like partly a story about trans slash intersex characters, uh, mostly a story about slavery. So they deal like heavily with the, the legacy of the Atlantic slave trade. Uh, but the deep is about these creatures that were born to pregnant women who are thrown overboard off slave ships and are these sort of mermaid kind of humans. Mm-hmm. And so like the the main character of, of this story is a uh, a mermaid kind of human who, um, like all members of their species, is intersex um, and falls in love with a human human. Uh, which is not the main point of the story. The main point of the story is is this character like reckoning with their history and being a historian. But like, there's just kind of like nice incidental like discussion of trans characters uh, living their lives, which is something I appreciate in a lot of science fiction. Um, okay, so so maybe I, I need to find like a, a more like directly trans themed science fiction. So I think. Um, porpentine hardscapes book psychonymph exile the name is porpentine porpentine hardscape i don't think that's that's the name that her parents gave her still a great name porpentine but i I feel Uh, like what is the book called it's called psychonymph exile okay it's it's wonderful so it's it's about um mecha pilots um who are fighting this this giant war and they're like women who who steer around in mecha suits and so i i think that this is like partly an allegory for trans embodiment um yeah i can see so what are some of the thought experiments that these books generate that you might use when discussing or reasoning about epistemology or metaphysics or anything like that related to sex and gender uh right so so the um so the deep the species in the deep um which again like is not primarily about sex and gender it's it's just one of the the features um they are all uh capable of producing sort of both kinds of gametes uh but they decide whether they are uh, men or women based on self-determination and the character actually uses this word self-determination and so one of the things that this does is to imagine a society where that's the case oh sorry i just remembered the dispossessed not not the dispossessed okay um, I, uh, <laughs> come on ursula Le Guin novel um the left hand of darkness um <laughs> i just remembered the left hand of darkness which is an on, another kind of like sex and gender thought experiment about a species 
that most of the time is not male or female, uh, but then has like a kind of a reproductive cycle where they either become male or become female and they mate and they only have like a, a biological sex for that cycle. And the, the main character is, is a human and they refer to him as a pervert because like he's always male. And they're like, that's, that's weird and inappropriate. Um, and so it's, it's a lot of him trying to come to terms with this society in which he is weird for being always male. And so I think that's a, that's a kind of interesting thought experiment is like, what if, what if you, in your embodiment that is normally considered like just regular and dominant were thrown into this peripheral position? These stories that you're describing to me seem like a great way for exploring like phenomenology yeah. and what it might feel like to be trans or if you're not or even if you are just have sort of other fictional people to bond with and for the authors i'm sure to explore and that that i think that was one of the the topics in your course how how it is that you how it is that somebody can know that they're trans is that something that these stories address at all ah uh, i think not directly any of them um, well then maybe i'll just pose that question right. philosophically i mean how does how does somebody know whether or not they're trans yes yeah, so this is like a hard question because like how does anybody know anything about themselves or the external world i'm pretty skeptical sure. in general so i, I think that okay yeah yeah so with that caveat because yeah I'm, I'm with you i'm also quite skeptical but it does seem i mean like i know there i know that I feel, therefore I am, that sort of thing. Uh, we can at least have some ground truths maybe about ourselves or how we feel. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that uh, sort of contemporary U.S. discourse expects you to know by introspecting and nothing else. And I don't actually think that's very realistic. So um, in our book, B.R. George and I talk about how... Um, instead of trying to figure out what your gender identity is by introspecting when we're not even sure that you have such a thing, uh, what you should try to figure out is like what you want. And you should do that by a combination of introspecting about like how you might feel if your life changed in various ways that you could change it and trying out low stakes versions of the things that you're contemplating and seeing if they work. And then you get information mm. about yourself by seeing what you're like in a new situation. So you could like ask your friends to use a new name and pronouns for you. I'm guessing then by that same coin, uh, if it's sort of an experimentation thing to know that you're trans, that's also how you might know that you're not trans. Yeah. But so I understand the experimenting with different pronouns, doing things that you're uh, contemplating, uh, but what does it, I guess it's a phenomenal, phenomenological question. What does it feel like to be trans? I mean, how do you, like, what, what sorts of experiences are you supposed to take as affirmative of being trans in, when you're conducting these sort of experiments? Uh, yeah, so, so I think, like, my, my impulse is to replace that with a more tractable question. Uh, because, 
it, it, like so should i transition in such and such way is a track is a tractable question because you're like should i undergo this experience um and you can you can know what it feels like to want to undergo an experience um if you want to and do undergo enough of those experiences you are definitely trans so um if you have somebody who's like call me by a new name and pronouns i'm going to take hormones and get surgery um i'm going to change all my legal markers i think that person is just is trans at some point um and it i guess it feels like something to be them so whatever it feels like to be them is one way it feels like to be trans but i'm not sure that there's a commonality of experience across all trans people In one of the messages you wrote me, you said you had some suspicion about the methodology around thought experiments in general for these questions. Is that particular to these questions or you're just not a fan of thought experiments in general? Uh, so, yeah, so so I do like thought experiments partly because they're fun, but also like I think that they can... Mm -hmm. um, they can help you distinguish between concepts by being like, here is a clear scenario where one of them applies and another doesn't. Um, B and I use at least one thought experiment in the book. So that suggests that I, <laughs> I like thought experiments. Um, I think they also have hazards though, because uh, you can, they can kind of significantly mischaracterize uh, experiment or, or experiences, which like is a weird thing to say, because like, how can I mischaracterize a fictional scenario? don't I just get to stipulate what's true in the fictional scenario? But then the fictional right. scenario is is supposed to represent like a real world scenario and it might get some features of that real world scenario wrong. That makes sense. And you said to ask you about Twin Earth and Ada, Blaze, and Cass. So what is that thought experiment? Oh, so these are two different thought experiments. Uh, oh, okay. Let's start with Twin Earth then. Yeah, Twin so, Earth is always fun. So B and I have a paper where we basically argue that um, womanhood, manhood, and non-binariness um, are sort of metaphysically distinct in a certain way from uh, which gender norms you are subject to right now and what your body uh, is configured like right now and which practices you engage in right now, which is like a a kind of surprising thing uh, because you might've thought that like all there was to being a woman, sorry, I'm going to turn off. I, I hope these pings aren't uh, too distracting. No, it's no problem. Yeah. So, so like the, the idea is that like, well, all, all there is to being a woman or a man or non-binary is just like being subject to certain social norms and uh, having a certain physical con configuration and liking to do certain things and not liking other things and maybe doing those things and not doing other things. Like, what else could there be? And so the thought experiments are meant to convince you that there must be something else to it, but aren't meant to tell you what else necessarily. So bo both of the thought experiments um, are to that end. And Got it. And can you um, share the thought experiment? Yes, yes. So the, the Twin Earth one is the one that I'm less sure about. Uh, but we imagine okay. uh, two societies, which we call Amazonia and Patriarcha, so okay. patriarcha Good is names. <laughs> uh, we have we have some slides where we have uh, pictures of of them, which were really fun to put together. Um, one of them was from Wonder Woman. <laughs> so uh, patriarcha is like this um, 
version of like 1970s white America where you might have formal equality of some sort between the sexes, but uh, there are like pretty strict gender roles and women are expected to be one way, men are expected to be a different way. Also, men and women are expected to have like physiological differences. Um, and Amazonia is just like a, a kind of role swapped world where sort of women are expected to be the ones who punch whoever needs punching and men are supposed to be the homemakers. Um, and in various versions of the paper, we, we have like imaginary sociobiological explanations of why uh, in Amazonia, it's natural for for women to be dominant and and men to be sort of serving the needs of women which was just because it was like fun to come up with not because it was particularly necessary um mm -hmm. so we have we have these two societies amazonia and patriarcha they're on different sort of twin planets um but they gradually evolve um in some ways that conduce to gender justice but not ways that like actually make them just so um, in both societies, like the physical requirements on womanhood and manhood are relaxed without the gender stereotypes being changed that much. So just relaxed entry and exit requirements. Um, maybe you don't even have to medically transition to enter exit category. You just like, so there are still these two like pretty sexist categories, but they're, they're just now like freely enterable and exitable. And the societies gradually adjust so that um, there are not rules about um, uh, assigning children to categories at birth. They get to choose when they hit adolescence. And so gradually there's population drift. So the physiology associated with one category um, is sort of gradually becomes like a population, population level indistinguishable from the physiology of the other category. And there are just other markers. So both of them drift in this way. Both of them retain their gender stereotypes. And you're going to end up with two societies where... Um, so, so we have um, on patriarcha we have two two categories: uh, blokes who start out being the men, and Sheilas who start out being the women. And so, blokes and Sheilas persist through this like change in membership criteria. And on Amazonia, we have girls, the dominant class, who are uh, associated with um, with sort of stereotypically female physiology, and boys who are the the sort of servile class were associated with stereotypically male physiology and they drift. So at the end of the drift, uh, blokes and girls, like the, the patriarchan blokes and the Amazonian girls are kind of indistinguishable from each other. And the patriarchan Sheilas and the Amazonian boys are indistinguishable from each other. But blokes are men and girls are not men. Also, Sheilas are women and boys are not women. So mm. whatever distinguishes women from men has to be different from all the stuff that is shared between, say, blokes and girls or Sheilas and boys. So we use yeah, this. this seems like it. Go ahead. <laughs> we use this to argue for historical theory of womanhood and manhood. A, a historical theory of womanhood yes. and manhood? Yeah, so whether whether a category counts as a category of women or men depends partly on its history as well as its current features. Ooh. I like that. So it's kind of like a causal causal link. Yes, yes. Now, the way that you laid that out for me makes me wonder whether uh, you're secretly one of these authors who's... Um, 
whose pseudonyms <laughs> you gave earlier. Do you write fiction too? Because I, I, I actually, I know that you write poetry. And I know this because when we went out to dinner with uh, C.T. Wynn and you were reciting poetry, I was so impressed that I had to, I had to look it up and then I saw that, oh, wow, they write poetry too. <laughs> I do, yeah. <laughs> Thank you. Um, I, no, I don't, I don't write fiction or like I've, I've written poems that were sort of like short fictions in poetry form, but not like pure fiction. I, I uh, wish I had written some of those novels. My God. You still have time. <laughs> I can't write those. I mean, Pierre Menard aside, I can't write those yeah. novels. Yeah, Pierre Menard. And then, what is the if you if you have it in you? What is the Ada Blaze and Cass experiment? Right. So this one I'm actually more confident of because, like, uh, you might think Amazonia and Patriarcha are too distant from the actual world, and I've fudged some characteristic of the actual world that's actually important and i can't see what it is but ada blaze and Cass are closer to the actual world so these are just three characters who are alike with respect to their like physiology uh we make them all have like two x chromosomes sort of born with stereotypically female physiology um all of them have kind of currently decided not to go on hormones we might reconsider that later um you can make them identical triplets if you prefer and then uh, they're alike with respect to their the gendered behaviors that they engage in. So they all shop in the men's section, cut their hair short, uh, like to do a bit of weightlifting. Um, and they all uh, are alike with respect to what sort of gendered social norms they're s subjected to by a kind of heteronormative, patriarchal, sexist society. But they disagree with respect to how they want to be classified. So Ada says, look, I'm a... I am a proud, like, lesbian feminist woman. Blaise says, I am a proud trans man. And Cass says, I am non-binary. Please don't call me a woman or a man. And we think, look, there, there's good reason to respect all of their sincere claims to different gender category membership. But that means that gender category membership can't just be a matter of the traits that they share, because we can't distinguish them with respect to the shared traits. So what then does what are we supposed to take as distinguishing them then uh yeah so so we think that they uh they differ with respect to gender category membership um and we have a theory of like how this can be because like that's a little bit puzzling because that means that gender category membership is like this free-floating fact that doesn't supervene on the other stuff right and so we think um look it's a socially administered status um you get into it or out of it by like so roughly by your society having rules that classify you into it or out of it. Um, that's a little bit of an oversimplification because you might think, what if society's rules are wrong? Maybe we should go with what society's rules ought to be rather than with what they are. But it, like which category you belong to depends um, on something about society's rules, either what they are or what they would be in a more ideal world. And those, those rules don't have to just base classification on sort of externally observable features. They can also base classification on how you ask to be classified. Yeah, I can see how, how the, this raises like very big ontological questions about sort of what we want to uh, let into our, our inventory of the world, right? so to speak. And then there is there is another thought experiment uh, that the description of which you gave it uh, really 
sort of raised my brows, which was uh, Firestone's baby vats. Oh yeah. So so this um, so there's actually a, a science fiction um novel that makes use of this idea, um, which is uh, Marge Percy's Woman on the Edge of Time. So that's another kind of thought experiment that's also in science fiction. But I think Shulamit Firestone you're, came up with it first. So th- you're this very is just... widely read in this uh, science fiction, the the, the fine science fiction world. Oh my god, I feel like I have a total neophyte, but there are at least some cool novels that I can cite. <laughs> um, mm-hmm. But yes, yeah, so, so uh, Shulamit Firestone thought that like uh, biology is used to oppress women um, through like women uh having to gestate which is really costly like it's 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 costly it makes you vulnerable um if we so so um like there is a kind of biological basis for sexism but that doesn't justify sexism that justifies changing our biology was was firestone's idea so why do so why don't we like make technology that enables uh, babies to be grown in vats so that we don't have to use women's bodies for this purpose. So that that mm-hmm. was, I think that's just a, a really kind of cool thought experiment. Um, I don't think it's very realistic to grow babies in vats, but I think it, it shows something about uh, why just pointing to biology to justify existing inequalities is like not sufficient because you could say, well, why don't we change the biology or change its relation to the distribution of social goods? Right, and we have the power to do that. I mean, at this point, pretty much, or we're getting close. Yeah, and I mean, we've we've made changes to reproductive biology that conduce to social equality, and I, I think that those are good and we should keep doing that. Like, birth control mm-hmm. is, is a great innovation. Mm-hmm. So one last thing uh, that I saw on your syllabus and I was very curious about was that you devoted or you devote an entire week to prisons and trans feminism. And I was wondering how those two topics are related and, and why prisons deserve so much attention in the course. Uh, yeah, mostly I was curious because uh, the scholar Dean Spade um sort of writes on how prisons are uh a like particularly oppressive to trans inmates and b uh he thinks part of a larger system that uh like sexism and patriarchy and transphobia are part of uh that oppresses like lots of different people um so that that was kind of why i i put it on the syllabus um I I feel like I ended up learning more from those readings about um, why you might object to prisons and how you might go about getting rid of them than I really learned about why there's a connection between <laughs> prison prisons and transphobia. Um, but uh, so it, it ended up kind of being just an ex- excuse to read some things about prison abolition from my point of view. Okay. Yeah, I I recently had a conversation with my sister's wife who does research in carceral studies at Berkeley and I was so unaware of all all the very legitimate reasons for seriously reforming or 
in fact advocating for abolition of of our prison system yeah i mean i think it's particularly like in the u.s the prison system is really objectionable so i i I don't know whether i believe that like a a better world would have no prisons but it certainly wouldn't have the kind of prisons that we have now So I, I lied, I guess, when I said that I had one last question. Um, I'll ask another last question. So you just misidentified the last question. You can you can still have one. <laughs> yeah, I did. Uh, f- Philosophy Talk Radio. How long was it that you have been hosting that program? Oh, geez, I started like just before the pandemic in 2019, which okay, would make so it about three, three years. years. Yeah. Yeah. Well, for my own selfish interests, what are the most important things you've learned about being a host since then? Or the things that you wish you you knew when you started? I feel like so much of it is actually skills-based rather than like factual knowledge. So I've gotten much better at writing a sentence that sounds good when you say it out loud which is just a skill you have to practice a bunch of time. Hmm. And also at the, like the, the task switching that you have to do when you're like, I got to think of an intelligent thing to say. I got to keep the guest like wrangled and not going on too long, which I I think that you've let me go on much longer than we (laughs) let our guests go on and philosophy talk. Um, I've got to keep us to time. Um, I've got to make sure that I give the co-host, uh, like time and space to speak. I've got to not sound like a robot. And so just like all of those tasks in my brain at once, and like also trying to keep the, make sure like the philosophically interesting points get out. It's fascinating and fun. Mm -hmm. Not sounding like a robot is definitely something that I'm working on because I'm quite monotone. It's hard. You you don't have a thing that you're reading, which helps a lot because people can tell. Oh, yeah. Uh, do you do much reading when you're um, doing your podcast? Yeah, so we have um, we, we have like bits of station identification that we have to do because we're on the radio. And those are it doesn't matter if you sound like a robot for those as much. But then there's also like a five minute dialogue where we sound super smart and that's because we've scripted it all. <laughs> uh. <laughs> um, I am not that smart on the fly. <laughs> and also it, it, like practicing to get it to sound natural has been like a, a real, I don't know, a, a real education. Also like the, the practice of, Oh, so, so one really cool thing I learned was that co-writing a script is way less time and energy intensive than trying to write it by yourself. Like something about writing with other people makes it feel like a conversation instead of like the solipsistic exercise of trying to get stuff out of your brain. Yeah, I don't have any scripts, so that's uh, not something that I have to worry about. You also don't have an hour-long time slot that you are required to stay inside. Right. Sounds really nice. That's also very helpful too. So other than philosophy talk radio um you have your book coming out what is that one titled uh what even is gendered what when is that one gonna be 
Uh, so I don't know when it's going to be out yet. We've we've sent it to the editor and we need to do page proofs and I should probably bug them again for a timeline. Last time I asked them, they asked me about some completely unrelated thing. Okay. And is there anywhere else that uh, people should look for your work? Uh, so BR or George and I have a manuscript on Phil Papers called, uh, and, and B is responsible for this, uh, but I wish I were. It's called Science Fiction Double Feature Transliberation on Twin Earth. Okay. That's where we go through Great. the Twin well, Earth thought experiment. Okay, yeah. Having Being able to read, and I feel like I needed to take notes while you were talking to follow it. So having that in print would be really nice. But, okay. Well, thanks so much for joining me, Ray. This was really fun. Yeah, thanks. I'm really flattered that you wanted to interview me.